The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let me pray now. We'll move into the text for this morning. God, your righteous acts are beyond number. Your nature is hard for us to comprehend. But God, make us aware of you this morning. Help us to know you and your mind just a little more. Because that ultimately is what we need. We need you. We need intimacy with you. We need you dominating our insides so that we will walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling we've received. So I pray that you would do that this morning and that you would give us wisdom about how we are to walk. Spirit, have your way in my words and in all of our hearts this morning that Christ would be exalted. Help us, Lord, we pray. For his glory and for our great good. Amen. Two weeks ago, chapter 5, verses 15 to 21, we examined how Paul concluded, how he kind of boiled down, remember that funnel? Kind of boiled down what he'd been saying about worthy walking. There is, given the great salvation that God has worked on us and in us, laid out in chapters 1 to 3, there is a walking that is worthy of that, that is suitable for it, that matches it. And in those verses we saw that he kind of sums it up with the walk of wisdom. But more than just summarizing what we are to do or how we are to walk, we also saw in that passage that he summarized much of his teaching about how we are to do it. We saw that in verse 18. We are to be continually spirit-filled. Give the Holy Spirit free reign inside of you. Give him the keys to your heart. Give him free reign and invite him in and say, Lord, have me. Make me who you want me to be. Make me all that I am to be in Christ. Take this word of Christ, Spirit, and cause it to dwell richly inside of me. Renovate me in there to make me Christ's home. And from that continual process of that renewing by the Holy Spirit, from that comes the snapshots of this renewed life in 1920 and 21. In 19, we saw sweet, encouraging, exhorting, reminding, uplifting, God-centered worship amongst us, amongst the people of God, and from us towards Him. Verse 20 then, we saw thankfulness results. Thankfulness all the time for all things, the verse says, whether good or bad, because we know that the sovereign, wise God, whatever He brings to us, He eventually turns to our good. So we are to be thankful for all things, at all times. And then verse 21. The Spirit's work within us holds up Christ before our eyes so that we see Him and we fear Him. We look at Him in reverential awe. We are struck by Him and we become more and more trusting in Him and confident in Him and humble before Him. And then that leads to us becoming humble and submitted before others as is appropriate in certain relationships. Verse 21, you'll remember, is the topic sentence for 522 all the way to 
What he does then, beginning last week and continue on into next week, is he lays out for us three common God-designed authority structures. Three things that we all encounter in some way or another. Marriage and family and work. Each of these sections discusses spirit-filled submission in one party and spirit-filled responsibility in the other party, the one that's in authority. So last week we saw it was husbands and wives, marriage. Wives are commanded to submit to their husbands and husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church sacrificially. Doing what they most need to have to become who they were most meant to be. That was last week. This week now, we move on to the second of those three relationships, family. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Here they're about children and parents and how these two relate together. It's going to lay out for us some of how God intends for these two groups to interact. Now again, as I said last week, perhaps at this stage in your life you don't have any children or any children living at home with you. I still think this applies to you. You might have to think a little, little harder about how to apply it. One obvious way, I think, is it will help you know how to counsel and advise friends and other children that you minister to. It's an easy way. There may be other ways. But don't just tune out if you think, well, I'm not a parent right now. This is not for me. It is for you. So word of the Lord to you too. So my goal by the end of this morning is that you would understand and be motivated to embrace So not just know it, but be motivated to embrace God's design for this parent-child relationship. And here it is in a nutshell. God has established parental authority as a blessing to be embraced and as a responsibility to be faithfully discharged. God has established parental authority, parents and authority over kids, as both a blessing to be embraced and as a responsibility that needs to be discharged. It's his design. When he made the family, he created it like this. This isn't a cultural or societal thing. It transcends all nations, all people groups. This is what God intends throughout all of time. He was purposeful in that design. He meant for that authority structure to be a blessing to kids. To be embraced by them for their good. Their parents in authority over them, your parents in authority over you, are not to be, they're not to be seen as, they aren't to act as, some gigantic, powerful spoil sport. Out to ruin your life. No, they're a blessing to be embraced. And, for your parents, it is a responsibility given you that you need to discharge faithfully. God has established parental authority as both a blessing to be embraced and as a responsibility to be faithfully discharged. Let me read the text, and we're going to move into the two halves of that statement. The passage breaks down, obviously, to speak to children first and then to parents. So we'll approach it in two halves, but let me first read the passage. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. 
Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Verses 1 to 3 are addressed directly to children, all the kids among us. And notice this, guys. Paul assumes that you're here, that you've been listening all the way through from chapter 1, and that you have heard and have in some way appropriate to your age have comprehended what God has done in his people. He doesn't say to the parents, okay, now go round up the kids and bring them in here because now I have something to say to them. No, you've heard all of this. And now he speaks directly to you and he calls out to you, commands you really. He's telling you something. Here's the main point that he's speaking to you. Children, obey your parents. It's the command in verse 1. It's reinforced by the commandment quoted in verse 2. It's obviously the main point here. Children, obey your parents. And that sounds pretty straightforward. But we're going to look into that a little more deeply. Ask it three questions, and I think we'll come to understand it a little more comprehensively. It'll help you understand it a little more. I'm going to ask it three questions. What, what are these verses saying? I'm going to ask this passage, what do you mean? What are you saying? Why? Why are we to do that? And then how? This is not a how like a how-to, like a technique. I mean, how can I find it within myself? to do this because that can be hard sometimes to obey your parents. So what, why, and how? Let's start with the what. What is being said here exactly? This is a command to children. But who are children? I mean, we all are children of somebody, are we not? Is this speaking to all of us equally? Well, in some way, there is something for all of us, but fundamentally, no, it's not speaking to all of us. There's a little bit here for all of us who are adult children, it, particularly verse 2's commandment from the Ten Commandments reminds us of a biblical theme, biblical concept of always being respectful towards our elders, of caring for those who have cared for us and raised us. So there is something here that reminds us of obligations that communicated elsewhere that we adult children have. But primarily, fundamentally, this is talking to other kids, to young kids. Notice how, here's how we know this, I think. Notice how in these four verses, Paul has divided the family in half. On one half, verses 1 to 3, he's got the children, and he speaks to them, commandments to them. And in verse 4, the other half, he's got the fathers, or the parents, I'll argue in a little bit. He speaks to them. And we'll talk about what he says there more specifically later. But notice right now, what he says is, fathers, don't do this, but instead, raise up or bring up or, or nourish your children. So you've got the two halves here. This half is to nourish this half, to bring them up. And this half is to obey that half. The commands work together. You're obeying the ones who are raising you and you're raising the ones who are obeying you. So which half are you in? You can just ask the question, am I still being raised by my parents? Are they still bringing me up? Or is that over? And the answer is, if they're providing for your needs and putting a house over you and financially supporting you, they're still raising you. And if they aren't, they aren't. Verses 1 to 3 are talking to minor children. 
those who, to, are, those who are to obey those who are raising them. So that's who children are, those still being raised by their parents. And they are to obey them in the Lord. Children, obey, that is, to follow, be subject to, to do what someone else says. That's what the word obey means. In this case, it's obey your parents. Now, in some ways, that's not very hard to understand. I want to qualify that in one way, though. I hope this is obvious, but if your parents, just like last week, if your parents are telling you to sin, or if they are abusing you in some way, this isn't telling you to obey them. Instead, tell some trusted adult or something. Tell someone who can help you. But generally speaking, the word obey is not that hard to understand. It means do what your parents tell you. And that is probably just what you wanted to hear. Probably hoping that I would work that out some other way. Probably thinking, great, God tells me to do what my dad and mom tell me to do. That's good news. Actually, it is. It is meant to be good news for you. It's meant to be a blessing for you. And that takes us to the why question. Why am I supposed to do this? Why obey my parents? Paul begins to answer that at the end of verse 1. Now, at first, his answer does not seem like good news yet. He just says, obey your parents because that's right. And then he quotes the commandment, one of the Ten Commandments in verse 2 to back that up. This is right for, it says in the Bible, in the Ten Commandments, the fifth one, honor your father and mother. And to be honest, that alone should settle it. If we ask, why should I obey my parents? And if Paul says, because God says so, God has the absolute right to tell you what to do. He is the Lord of all things, and he is to be obeyed in everything, he says. This one included. That should settle it. But thankfully, there's more here. There's more why. This continues on in verse 2. He's giving this quote, and he interrupts his quote. And what we're going to see is that more than just because God says you should, it is to your great benefit. He takes his quote, and he's going on, honor your father and mother, and then he interrupts it and says, this is the first commandment with a promise. Then he goes back, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Paul says this commandment to you because God said so. He actually says God said so because it is to your benefit. Now this commandment and promise was first given to Israelite children. And it related to the Old Testament covenant that God had with these, with these people. And he was saying to them, Obey the Lord and obey your parents and the covenant blessings will come to you and not the covenant curses. You'll be able to live long in this land and I'll bless you physically with many things. But like Paul so often does, he takes an Old Testament statement spoken to ethnic Israel about physical things and he takes it and he applies it to the church. And so he says to you, Christian teenager, Christian grade schooler, God's given you a promise here. There is a way that life may go well with you and that you may enjoy a full life here on earth. Doesn't that sound good? A life that connects with how you were made and what you were made for. A life that satisfies your heart at its deepest levels. 
A life that brings you meaning and purpose. Don't you want that? We all do. All of us want that. And for you, at this stage in your life, God ties that to you obeying your parents. But why? Why does he connect those things? Here's at least part of why. God knows people better than we know ourselves. He does. He made us. He knows how we tick. He knows how we grow up. He knows how we develop. He knows what our tendencies are, our bad tendencies and our good tendencies. He knows how we're made. He knows how you're made. And so when he tells you something about yourself, you need to pay attention to that because he's right. So I'm going to try to explain why God ties together this blessing and obeying your parents. Why he ties those things together. I'm going to use one Bible verse to kind of sum that up. And I want to encourage you, when you hear God telling you who you are here, don't become angry at him. We could throw these types of terms around and be insulting, but God's not trying to insult you. By no means. (laughs) God's not trying to insult you. He's trying to bless you by telling you who you are, how you work. So I'm going to quote one verse here. This is Proverbs, the wisdom literature. We've been talking about this wise walking. This comes from the wisdom literature. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15 says, it's telling you and telling your parents that folly or foolishness, opposite of wisdom, that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. And we've been talking for the last several weeks about this walk of wisdom as the summary of the life that pleases God. And what he says here is that though all of us struggle with foolishness and wisdom, this is particularly connected to children, to youth. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Think of it like this. Suppose that you are allergic to chocolate. Sorry. (laughs) Suppose that you are allergic to chocolate. And it would, if you ate it, it would hurt you or maybe even kill you. And set right in front of you is a wonderful looking cookie mix. Unfortunately, there are two full cups of chocolate chips knit all through it. You'd really like some cookies. They would taste good. But the chocolate is shot through it. And you can't eat chocolate. It's bound up in the mix. Well, God's telling you here that foolishness is bound up in your heart. And in Proverbs, certainly the emphasis is on moral foolishness. Sin. Things like defiance and selfishness and laziness. Those kinds of things. That moral foolishness is what Proverbs is certainly emphasizing. But I think it's legitimate to expand it beyond that. There are other things that are in you just because you're young. You don't fully understand how you think about everything. You don't understand how other people think and what they're after. You don't understand how your bodies work. You have a hard time controlling your emotions sometimes. You don't understand money or education. There are things that you just don't know because you're, you're young. So both moral foolishness and then just things you don't know because you're a kid. Both of those things run through your life. They're all wrapped in there. They're bound up in your heart. You were born, fallen in sin, says the Bible. And your nature, your heart, 
from the very beginning, does not walk this path of wisdom that is pleasing to God. It doesn't. Ultimately, what you need is a new heart. You need to be converted, to be saved by God's grace, to get a new heart to be changed. That's what God has been talking about in all these chapters here in the book of Ephesians. But additionally to that, additionally to God working to change your heart by saving you, He also means to work in you to change you bit by bit by bit, to pry this foolishness away from you. He aims to to help you by growing you, to take away from you all the stuff that will hurt you a lot if it stays with you. Grip gets a hold of you and holds on to you for life. We've, We've all seen adults who act like fools. Something was not separated from them. How does God mean to separate that? Well, that verse continues. He says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. And you might not like to hear this next part until you think about how it's good for you. He says, but the rod of discipline drives it far away. It's as if God means for the rod of discipline, and that certainly includes punishment, but it also includes the shaping of your life that a parent will do to you through his rules and punishment and teaching and correction. It's as if the rod of discipline comes through and picks out all of the chocolate chips, one by one by one by one by one. You couldn't do it, but something else does. God means discipline from your parents. That's primarily their job, especially your father's job. We're going to see that in the very next verse in Ephesians 6, verse 4. That's their job. But in order for that to work well, for it to work correctly, you have to submit to that, to cooperate with them. They can try to discipline you all you want, pull those chocolate chips out, but if you keep throwing them back in, it's not going to work. You obey your parents. It's meant to be a blessing to you. I look at my own life, and I have always had a, a little rebellious streak in me a streak of anti. If a group wants to go see a movie, for some reason, I don't. Just because they do. I don't even know what the movie, I don't even need to know what the movie is. I just don't want to go. If somebody tells me to do something, I won't. Even if it's clearly in my best interest. Why is that? Well, it's certainly my sinful foolishness still in me, and this might sound crazy, but I really wish 30 years ago the rod of discipline had driven that away from me. My life would go a lot better these days. I would have had a different 30 years. It would have saved me from a lot of trouble. I think my future would be different as well. My relationships with people, my response to human authority and to divine authority, God's authority, would be different. If only that had been driven away from me. God has set up this structure to do that if-only thing. To drive those things away from me and away from you. He's given you parents. And he's tasked them to do this. So the next verse is going to say to them, But what it's saying to you is embrace that. Don't resist it. Don't rebel against them. Don't say, don't you dare discipline me. Hebrews chapter 12 says that God disciplines his sons that he loves. 
The discipline of parents to you is supposed to be a sign of their love for you. Sure, they do it wrong sometimes, of course. It kind of takes us to the how question. How can you do this? Because it, it can be difficult, especially when your parents clearly have no idea what is going on in your life. That happens sometimes, doesn't it? At least we think it does. How can you obey a parent who is seemingly to you clearly making a mistake? Let's suppose that they actually are making a mistake. Now, if they're abusing you or telling you to sin, that's another thing. I already set that aside. Don't obey them in those situations. But most time that's not going on. How do you find it within yourself to obey them? If you're seven years old, let me just say this and be very clear about it. If you're seven years old, what you need to do is you need to read your Bible as best you can and listen to your teachers and your parents tell you about Jesus and ask him to show himself to you. Say, Jesus, I want to understand you more. I don't know you as well as I want to, but can you help me understand you more? And then you move on from there and you obey your parents. He'll change you a little by little by little. If you're 17, I want to add a few things to that. Make it a little more clear. Remember where this comes from. This is a command to you to obey your parents. At this time in your life, it's probably harder than ever. Remember where this comes from. 6, 1 through 3 comes from 521, which comes from 518. Underline those in your Bibles or write those down or whatever, whatever technique you use. It's important to connect it back to those verses. Because what it's saying is that how you are to do this is not... Christianity is not telling you, suck it up and obey. It's not. You connect 6, 1 to 3, back to 5, 21, back to 5, 18, and what Christianity says to you is, be changed inside. It's the difference between chocolate and vanilla ice cream. You like chocolate ice cream, and Christianity is not saying to you, the Bible is not saying to you, eat vanilla and like it. And so you shovel it in and say, man, this tastes awful. And I have to do it to be a good Christian. No, it's not saying that. What it's saying is, you shouldn't eat chocolate. It'll kill you. You're allergic to it. Eat vanilla. And I know right now you don't have a taste for vanilla. I'll change that for you. Now how that process happens does involve some by faith eating vanilla. But that's not the end of the story. You eat vanilla by faith and you cry out, God, change my taste buds. I've got a taste for something that's wrong. Change my taste buds. And he will. Look at Christ in front of you. You can understand this if you're 17 years old. Look at Christ in front of you. What I mean is you have to see him with the eyes of faith. See how good he is to you and how good he will be for you. And ask him, Change me so that I love you more than this other foolishness in my life. Change, you, change me so that I love you and am willing to obey my parents who mean good for me and are a blessing from you to be embraced. The Bible, Christianity, the church, we're not telling you suck it up and obey. We're saying God can change you on the inside. And it's a marvelous thing when he does. That is how... You can find it within yourself 
follow this first commandment here. Children, obey your parents. For the second half, tables turn and we begin to talk to the parents. Verse 4. Specifically now we're addressing fathers. Fathers are directly in view here. Everything that follows in verse 4 is primarily addressed to you, dads. So, don't let this kind of hit you and then slide off and come to rest on your wife. You are front and center here. Fathers. But at the same time, I don't think that mothers get a free pass here either. Verse 1 is children to parents, both of them. Verse 2 is honor your father and mother. Let's remember that was the promise that's to be embraced by the kids, that their parents would, would drive foolishness away from them, and mom can do that too. So I think that though this is directly speaking to fathers and they have to be front and center here, mom's in the picture also, if indirectly. Speaking to you too. Dads, though, take care that you don't let this become a we have to do this, which then becomes a she does it because she's around more often. So speaking to you directly. With that said, here's the main point of verse 4. Parents, particularly fathers, Parents, nourish your children. Bring them up. That's how all of our English translations read there. Bring them up. But it's the same word back in the previous, back in the previous chapter, verse 29, where Christ nourishes his body, the church. And therefore, husbands were to nourish their wives. And here, parents are to nourish their kids. We're looking back at the model of what the Lord does, and we carry that out in different ways. Parents, nourish or bring up your kids. That's the goal with which we are to diligently approach them. But before he gets to that nourishing and bringing up, in his common manner, he tells us first what we are not to do. He often has this, not this, but this. Well, here's what we're not to do. Do not provoke your kids to anger. Don't drive them towards it. Don't egg them on. Don't feed it. Don't stoke the fire of anger. Think about this. We've already seen anger show up in this letter. Back in chapter 4, anger gives Satan a foothold. You don't want to say in relation to your child, pick a, take a daughter for instance, hey Satan, why don't you come over here? Here's some of my abusive words and my harsh tone. Let's chip out a little foothold for you here in my daughter's life. I'll be back next week with some rashness and some indecisiveness and inconsistency and we'll get you a handhold on her. No! You don't want to say that. You don't want to give Satan a foothold or even a little toehold in her life. It'll eat her up. As you push her towards anger, you are pushing her towards death. Don't do that. Not at all. Take care with this. Don't provoke them towards it. So what does that? Well, think it through for a minute. What provokes you to anger? You're a person just like your kids are. Some of those things I mentioned, harsh words against you, Inconsistency. How do you feel at work if you've been turning in a report on Tuesday every week for a month and then one Monday you get yelled at because it's due on Monday? What's going on? Why didn't you do I would have turned it in on Monday if you just told me. How often do we treat our kids that way? We change the rules on them and then lash out at them. Or we're not clear about what the rules are and then we lash out at them. I, I do that. Think through what makes you upset, what angers you, what frustrates or exasperates you. 
It's the same stuff for her, for him. This makes our authority hard to bear, and it plants and it waters and causes to grow up the seed of anger. It's destructive. There's no way we could be comprehensive here, but just to share a little bit about myself and what I find helpful, I'm not danger in sharing this is that I either end up looking like an awful parent or a perfect parent. I'm neither. And this is, may not be the best way, but it's a way that I've found helpful to deal with this. Throughout this week, I've observed myself. I had the luxury of knowing what I was going to be talking about. And I've observed myself parent. And I've seen a few times when I've egged on anger and I've watched what happens. What results from that is frustration. Sometimes it actually looks like a hopelessness, like I can't win for trying. Well, what I think works well when I do it is to see that happening and stop and interrupt it and talk about it. I say something like this when I do it. I say something like, "Huh? it seems like you're frustrated here. Is it because whatever I just did or said or whatever just happened? And I'm expecting that we'll talk about that and one of two things will happen. Either in language that makes sense, and I'm... I'm using this in language, speaking to adults here, so you've got to translate this to whatever age your kids are. In language that makes sense, I'm going to take the opportunity to find out what the hoped-for desire there was, and I'm looking for idolatry. Remember the root of anger is idolatry back in chapter 4? I'm looking for what was more important than God. What was more important than pleasing the Lord here? I'll look for that, and if I find it, I'll point it out, and point back to Christ and trusting Him and how that is blessing. That might be one result. Or I might find out, ooh, I was wrong. I made a mistake. And that happens. I need to confess that sin if I, was, if I lashed out in some way. Repent of that. You repent to your children. They're people. It's okay. They won't undercut your authority. You're still clearly in charge. Repent and ask for forgiveness. I do that sometimes. Probably not as often as I should. I am not the perfect parent. But I've found this to be helpful sometimes. It either cuts short the, the anger, or when I find the anger has already been established there, it, it keeps it from growing. Maybe that will help you. Maybe some other method will help you. Maybe there's a much better method that I don't know about. But do something. Do not provoke your kids to anger, and when you find it, cut it off. Don't provoke them to anger, but instead, bring them up, or nourish. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You have been established as the authority over your kids, and while for them it is a blessing that they are supposed to embrace, for you it is a responsibility. You have been given this, and you must discharge it faithfully. You have a job to do in raising them. You are to pass on to them Christ, and that's done by two slightly different routes here. Christ-word discipline and Christ-word instruction. These two words are similar in meaning. They have a little bit of overlap, but together they present a, a more full picture. Discipline, that Christ-word discipline, emphasizes the physical. And yes, that includes punishment. But it's more than that. It's various things like practice and training and creating structures to help guide and develop. It's teaching skills. It's emphasizing what you do with your kids. 
how you act with them, and how you shape them to act by your actions. Lots of things you could do here, but you just need to look at them and figure out how has God gifted them? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? Where is foolishness particularly bound up in their heart? And of course it's going to be unique to your kid. Some commonalities between all children, but it would be different for yours a little bit. I'm no expert in this, but it takes some observation to figure out what's going on and to think through how can I act to shape that. Maybe you need to teach Bible study techniques or memorization. Maybe you create a plan that helps them take care of their body, Temple of the Holy Spirit, by learning how to eat properly and brush their teeth and shower regularly. That's appropriate stuff. Perhaps you guide them towards gratefulness and heart and generosity and humility by leading the family in serving others who are less privileged than you. Lots of things you could do here. That's what's being emphasized in this first word. Christ word discipline. And then the emphasis in Christ word instruction is on what you say. See how they kind of work together here. What you say. The word literally is admonish. To correct a wrong. You read and you teach and you remind them of these great and mighty works of this God that are beyond number. We saw that in Psalm 71. You bring that to them and you admonish and correct and reteach them when they stray from it. What you say has great influence on them. You're trying to bring home to them who this Christ is and how valuable he is to you first and then to them. So you pray with them and you let them hear, I hope, in your prayers the earnestness that you have to know him. One of my favorite authors and pastors describes how he trembled, that's the word he used, trembled when he heard his father pray. Growing up as a kid, he didn't know the Lord, but when he heard his dad pray, he knew his dad knew the Lord. There was something there and he trembled at it. You're teaching your kids with your words in that way. You let them also see the earnestness that you, that you feel that Christ would be known and exalted as you witness to your neighbors around you. All day long, Deuteronomy 6 talks about how you're walking through life in all these different venues. You're teaching and instructing throughout the day. The second route of how we raise up and nourish our kids. We drive away foolishness by punishment and by instruction, correction. Let me re- recommend a book to you that may be of help in this. A book that I found helpful. It's called Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. It's Tripp, T-R-I-P-P, two P's. Shepherding a Child's Heart. And the title will tell you the point. As a parent, what's being said here in verse 4 is that you are to bring up, to nourish, to guide, to care, to shepherd your child's heart. Not just change behavior. You can change behavior right now because you're a lot bigger and more powerful, but time's coming when you're not going to be able to do that. And woe to you if you haven't changed the heart. That's what you've got to shoot for. Shepherd their heart. This book is very helpful in pointing that out and guiding you in the process of doing that. I found it helpful for discipleship, for lots of other applications, not just for raising kids. It's a good book. I recommend it. I've necessarily been somewhat vague here. I don't know all the details. I don't even know uh, 
And I don't, don't know all your kids, so let alone how they all function. The point is that I'm supposed to know mine. The command is to me to know my kids, it's to you to know your kids. It's clear here. Nourish them. As a wise saint once said in commenting on this passage, if parents but gave as much thought to the rearing of their children as they do to the rearing of animals and flowers, the situation would be very different. I might add, if parents gave as much thought to our kids as we do to developing our businesses and golf games and home decor, the situation would be much different. From where I live, that quote gets at the problem. I doubt very much that any of the Christian parents sitting here would have serious problem with anything that I've just said about verse 4. Who wants their kid to be angry? Who wants to join a club, how to provoke your children to anger? Nobody. We don't want Satan to have a foothold in them. We don't want Satan to eat them up. We want them to be drawn to Christ and taught about him, obviously. Clearly we see that it's a command here to us that we're to carry out. No doubt about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing to disagree with here. Problem is, I don't do it. Do you? I have to be blunt with myself here to get my own attention. I don't do this because, frankly, I don't value it. Sure, I see it written there, I understand it. But I have inordinate loves. What I love and cherish is all messed up in me, and the vast majority of the time, I would love some more free time. And what I really want is for them to be quiet so that I can have it. I'm not shooting to nourish them and bring them up in the Lord. I'm trying to make an environment in which I can relax. Are you? Is that how you're living? Is that how you're dealing with them? I don't have the passion that the psalmist has in Psalm 71. God, let me live. Sustain me in old age and drive off my oppressors so that I can do this one thing. Pass on you to them. That's not me. Is it you? May God grant that which He requires of us. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.